Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. Welcome to Connections. I'm Colleen Hood with Mike Tom. Today's guest has a story that at times can be very difficult to listen to, but it's a story that needs to be shared. We're joined by Raymond Mason. He's an Ojibwe activist who campaigns for the rights of residential school survivors. He's also the founder of Spirit Wind, which is an organization that played a key role in the development of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. Raymond is also the survivor of Indian Day and residential schools in Manitoba. And over the next couple of days, he'll share with us his struggles to find meaning in life after trauma and abuse. We're joined again today by Raymond Mason. At just eight years old, he was taken away from his home and brought to Indian Day and residential schools in Manitoba. He's now an Ojibwe activist who campaigns for the rights of residential school survivors and a founder of Spirit Wind, which is an organization that played a key role in the development of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. What was a typical day like for you as a child or a young person in a residential school? What did a day look like? Oh, we got up and and, uh, and we used to... Uh, we used to have a, have a maybe we made a shower, and uh, I remember the old his name was uh, Mr. Chasky, uh, David. Uh, I think it was David Chasky or something. Like that. But anyway, I remember getting uh, abused there too. Like you know, it, it wasn't good. I didn't I didn't like showering because I knew this would happen. And and then we'd get dressed and go and have breakfast, or you know, and and uh, we'd would eat in the basement part of that building, and then the girls would come on one side and we were on the other side. We kept us separate. You know, I went to that school in Bertle, Manitoba, and and I I lived there and I went to school there for two years. I didn't realize that my two of my sisters was on the other side. On the female side. Wow. Two years in the same building, you know. And and when we used to go to church, we'd we'd uh, there'd, be, there'd be a big long hallway. We'd meet in the center, and there'd be a bigger, wider hallway. And we had to stand on the right hand side and the female on the left hand side. And we'd go in, uh, walk into the church, and that's where, uh, but. That's where I, re- I I looked and I noticed my sister Nora, and I started to scream and cry, and I ran across that I guess that line, invisible line that you're not supposed to break, and I went and grabbed her and I started crying and I was trying to hug her, and I was just uh, apparently I was shaking and trembling, and and that's when Mr. Russo, I don't know his first name. His principal. That's when he come and grab me, and and and, uh, and he used me again as a as an example. This is what you don't do when you. This is what you do. You don't do. This, no, pardon. This is what happens when you break the rules. And then he starts strapping me, and 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 he was holding me, and I was running around in, his, in the circle in front of in front of the, my my mates oh. and the girls too. You know, this I, is punishment for running to hug your sister after seeing her for the first time in two years. Yeah, well, yeah. Wow. You what, know, 
and and to have killed me because of that, you know, in front of everybody, it was terrible, terrible. What do you feel were the long-lasting effects of all the trauma and the the abuse that you experienced as a child? How did that play out in your adult life then? Well, I came out of there a very confused, angry uh, person. I didn't know what I wanted in life. I didn't know, uh, you know, how to how to live. Basically, because when you come out of that system. You know, you're brought up as a number. They never taught us um, the facts of life. Like, you know, when you leave this place, this is what's going to, you have to do. And then you have to learn how to go and buy your own clothes, wash your own clothes, pay your rental for wherever you live. Um, you know, when you got to look for a, you have to get a job. These things I, I didn't know. Mm. And, and uh, you know, and the impact, personally, it, uh, it affected me in, Different ways, like uh, many different ways, I can say. Um, you know, I was angry. I was upset at anything and everybody. And I, I became an alcoholic. Um, I didn't know how to be a parent. You know, and uh, I didn't know how to uh, how to love somebody. You know, I had problems with um, with my relationships, and the, you know, I had no clue. And, uh, I, you know, like, I, I, I didn't, it, so I had went through many, many relationships. I went through a lot of breakups and, you know, uh, and, and, you know, and, and even my, my, my wife, I finally got married after 27 years or 28 years, my first wife. Later on in life, with, uh, with her, she, she became... To, um, like uh, be like a mother figure to me rather than a wife, you know, and uh, I was looking for, uh, I guess, affection or whatever. Being an alcoholic, it creates a lot of other problems. Lost a lot of jobs, uh, never made it to work, lost a lot of good jobs, you know. And those are just some of the effects that it had me in in life, you know. I was in jail a lot because... You see, uh, during my lifetime, too, I liked boxing, so I was a boxer. And I was Canadian champ for three three years, uh, wow. middleweight, amateur boxer. So when I went drinking in the bars, I didn't like white men, white people. And if you looked at me the wrong way, you got a licking. Mm. It didn't matter how big or how small you were, you got it. And, and I had ended up in jail. And after many years of going back and forth in jail, I was finally sentenced to, to go and spend time with a psychiatrist. I had to make make sure to go and see this. And this was when, after I left Winnipeg, I went to Alberta, Edmonton. And, you know, at first I was so angry at this this judge. I, you know, I don't need a, a head shrink. Anyway, uh, I went and seen this psychiatrist, and her name was Tracy Cook from Edmonton, Alberta. And, you know, that was the best thing that ever happened in my life. I I sobered up. I went and spent time with this psychiatrist for two and a half years. And, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, 
Yeah. I get choked up when I talk about this. Yeah, understandable. It's it it is about that point in life where I found myself after spending two and a half years with a psychiatrist. I was driving home where I was living in Edmonton at that time, and uh, it's like somebody flipped the light switch in my in my brain in my mind, and I thought, you know, oh man, oh that's the reason why. I was such a miserable person. Mm. That's the reason why I brought my children up like a sergeant. That's the reason why I, I you know, I, I treated my wife this way, that, that way. That, you know, and, and that is the reason why I didn't, I, I didn't, I was such a, a miserable father, parent, because I realized then that I had to go back home to Winnipeg and, and, uh, Start making amends to everybody, including my children. Your son, and Kyle, God. is on the line. Kyle, if you yeah. could jump in for a second, what was that moment like when your dad uh, apologized to you? Was that something you were able to accept right away with understanding or something you had to work through yourself? Uh, it's something I had to work through. It took, it took, it took years for us to have an active, um, healthy um, relationship that looked anything remotely like a father-son relationship. Um, I remember feeling really angry and very bitter uh, towards him. I was about 19 or 20 at the time, and uh, I remember thinking that, um, well, to watch my language, forget him. Um, <laughs> I, I, by that point, I felt like I had grown up um, without him. I had he had missed everything in my life. I had not seen him in about 11 years at this point. Um, you know, I had gone through all my te- uh, adolescence and teenage years, all the all the ups and downs of, of those years of my life. Um, many times, many times, wishing my father was there, was never there. So, I think I got to the point where I just felt angry and bitter, and and I said, you know, he basically missed my life already. So, who needs him going forward? Mm. Um, and my my journey on that was, um, and so I took that time when he apologized. I took that time and I kind of laid it out to him and I kind of gave it to him. I said, "Here's all the ways you've hurt me. Here's all the ways you failed me. Here's all the things you've missed." Um, and I just put it all out there. And I think it was a very difficult conversation on both sides. But it, it was years later when I was uh, studying to become a pastor. Uh, I was taking some counseling courses um, in my studies, and one of the courses. You had to take turns sometimes being the counselor, sometimes receiving the counseling. And uh, I remember the, the professor said, that you have to pick a real topic to talk about in the counseling session. It, it was a real counseling session. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, I guess the, the, the fellow student being a good counselor kind of, you know, let's talk about your shelter, let's talk about your family. And anyways, we got to the point where um, the counselor, the fellow student said, you know, there there has to be a point where it might be best if you learn to forgive your father. And seeing it was, you know, in a Christian setting, he said, um, you have been given grace. You don't deserve grace. Nobody deserves grace. Your father does not deserve grace. Your father does not deserve your forgiveness. But you might be a better person um, if you learn to forgive him and you extend him grace. And that was um, that was the beginning of me choosing to... Uh, to forget my father and to build a relationship with him. 
I know today you're very proud of your father, but how did you begin to repair that relationship? Was it just a matter of talking to one another, spending a bit of time with one another? Or? It started slowly. Uh, at first, you know, we would talk every few months. Um, you know, sometimes when he was in Winnipeg, we'd get together for a short coffee. Um, it, it was a slow build over a number of years. And, uh, and sometimes it, it was an intentional choice that I, that I made. Uh, and I know it was a, not always the easiest thing for him as well, but it's something we both chose to do, and uh, I'm very thankful for it. These, these days, my father and I are very close, um, especially now with helping him with the book stuff. We talk basically daily. Um, I'm very proud of my father and the, the progress he's made in life, uh, the healing that he has done and the steps of reconciliation that he's done and has attempted to make in his life. Uh, I, these days, I'm, I'm proud to call myself his, his son, and I'm, and I'm proud of him and his efforts. First of all, thank you, son. I love you very much for that. And, uh, again, you know, uh, I guess that's the reason why we never fished. We did much fishing together and hunting and things that we should have did, you know, <laughs> together. And... Uh, but I'm glad, and I'm, I'm happy for that, son. Thank you very much. And despite the obstacles that both of you have faced, you both have become very successful in your life. Yeah, you know, um, I always say, like I said before, the good thing I can say is that I did get an education, and I, and I started to concentrate on on reconciliation, not only with myself, but with my abusers. And the system, you know, and uh, I felt that I had to get, I guess I can say in layman's language, revenge or make them, make Canada uh, accountable for all the abuses they, that they put me through, you know. And when I began in 1986, uh, I, you know, like I was sober for, for a number of years by that time. And I, I thought, well, I'm going to go after Canada. I'm going to make them personally. At first, it was just for me. And, and I'm going to go after them and, and make them uh, pay me for what they did. That's, uh, that's the best way to do it, to make them think and hurt government, is to take money out of their, their pockets. That, that was my thinking at, at that time. So I made it my personal mission that I would begin to advocate not only for myself, but for the rest of the survivors throughout Canada. Because, you know, I, 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 uh, at that time, I didn't realize uh, the, the enormity or the scope of, of the survivor issue across Canada. I didn't realize I was starting something that would would uh, mushroom or grow into the to what it, it worked out you know so I I so I did play a, a, a very key role in the fruition of the Indian residential school agreement and also an Indian day school agreement I, I pushed the issues I, I was behind the scenes my you might as well say but I always kept it alive I, I spoke to people that I, I felt that could help me uh, do the right thing and to get the job done. And you know, there was lawyers that was was scared to, to take this case on, 
at the, at the beginning because because uh, they were they were afraid of retribution from the government. Yeah. You know, and uh, and and so I, you know, like I said, I'm going to go back to 1986. I said that I would never rest in peace until I I receive and get comp- uh, justice, compensation, and an apology, and to teach our people outside Indian country what happened to us as Indian people that went through this, this system that I went through. Now, Raymond has so much more to share with us. He'll have one more day of conversation with us. Join us tomorrow for part three of our conversation with Raymond Mason. Don't forget to subscribe to Connections with Mike, Tom, and Colleen Hood. You can do that by visiting podcastville.ca or wherever else you get your favorite podcast from. We'll talk to you again on Connections.